You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 13 together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's bow together as we begin. Our Father, we need Your help in studying Your Word, in reading Your Word, in understanding it. We pray that Your Spirit would be our teacher today and that You would turn our eyes from vain things and fix our attention upon Your Word and establish Your Word to us, Your servants, as that which produces reverence for You. Open our eyes that we may behold in it wonderful things, and convict our hearts and edify us and equip your people today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. And we have a tendency as human beings to divide ourselves up into classes and categories and fix all kinds of labels on ourselves. We divide each other up by nationality. We have Americans and Canadians and Cubans and Russians and Chinese, etc. We divide each other up by generations. So we have Generation X and the Baby Boomer Generation and Generation Y and then Generation Z or whatever's coming next. I don't even know if they know what's coming next. And we divide each other up by race so that we recognize black people and white people and yellow people and olive-toned people. We divide each other up by political parties so that we have conservatives and Republicans and liberals and Democrats and libertarians and now into that whole mix, socialists and communists, I guess, the official party in the United States nowadays. Divide each other up by political faction. We divide each other up even by uh, social class and economic status so that you have the upper class and the middle class and the lower class. And we're just used to sort of dividing everybody up into groups. And in spite of our, all of our efforts to divide one another up into groups and affix labels to each other, there are in reality, in the eternal scheme of things, only two classes of humanity. The Bible recognizes only two groups. And there are only two designations that really, in the end, matter for anything. There are, among humanity, over all of the course of time, believers and unbelievers. And that's it. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white, American or Canadian, Hispanic, upper class, middle class, lower class, liberal, Democrat, libertarian, Republican, conservative, communist. None of those other labels really matter. In the eternal scheme of things, the only two categories that really have any lasting significance is believers and unbelievers. There is no third option. To not be a believer is to be an unbeliever. 
To be a believer is to not be an unbeliever. And the Bible describes believers with a lot of different terminology and terms. To be a, be- a believer is to be saved. That's to be redeemed. It's to be a child of light. It is to be somebody who has been given life. It is to be a member of the kingdom of God. To be unsaved is to be a child of darkness, a child of Satan, a member of the kingdom of darkness. It is to be unsaved and unredeemed. There are believers and there are unbelievers. And consequently, there are only two kingdoms in this world. Not the kingdom of the United States and every other kingdom, but there is only the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And the kingdom of God is populated by the sons of light, the children of obedience, the redeemed, the saved, the born again, the believers, those who walk in life and those who walk in light, those who are and belong to God by adoption, the saved. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, is occupied by the sons of Satan, the children of disobedience, the unsaved, the unredeemed, the unborn again or unregenerate, those who are lost and those whose eternal destiny is hell, whose home is this earth. In the kingdom of God, our home is in heaven and our eternal destiny is in heaven. So consequently, there are only two kingdoms, God's and Satan's, only two groups of humanity, believers and unbelievers, only two masters, God and the devil, only two types of sons, children of obedience and children of wrath or disobedience. There are only two spheres in which we live, that is, spiritual death and spiritual life. And there are only two realms in which we live, that realm of light and that realm of darkness. And there are only two kingdoms to which we can belong and only two eternal destinies, either heaven or hell. That seems very clear, doesn't it? Because there really is no third option. And to become a believer is to leave the kingdom of darkness. It is to leave the realm of death and the realm of darkness to stop being a child of the devil, to stop being a child of disobedience and an object of God's wrath. And it is to become a believer or a child of God to enter into light, to receive an inheritance with the saints in light, to receive eternal life and eternal uh, eternal freedom from all condemnation and to be made a citizen of heaven and to be granted a home in heaven. And to remain an unbeliever is to remain in the kingdom of darkness. And those who die in the kingdom of darkness, die in unbelief, die a child of Satan and receive the just punishment for their sins. And once you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, you are a child of heaven now and a citizen of heaven. Your eternal destiny is heaven. You never have to fear the wrath of God. Only two options, belief and unbelief. And we run into those two choices early in the Gospel of John in chapter 1. You saw them in verses 10 through 13. We run into them early in the Gospel of John because the rest of this Gospel really unfolds those two themes, sometimes side by side, just as it is in the first chapter. We are going to see in the Gospel of John all of the evidence as to the deity of Jesus Christ, His nature, who He claimed to be, what He claimed to have done, laid out for us by John. And then there are only two possible responses to that, either belief or unbelief. So John, having told us that the eternal Word, who always existed with God, as God, who was also the life and the light and was the creator of all things, having told us that, John then says that this light came into the world as a light who gives light to every man. In other words, God came to the world. Now, having been presented with that fact, there are only two possible responses that you can have. The one is belief, and the other is unbelief. 
And so having said that the light has come into the world and given light to every man in verse 9, you see in verse 10 and verse 11, the response of unbelief. He came to the world or he was in the world and the world did not know him. The world was created by him and the world did not know him. So he came into his own and those who were his own did not receive him. That's the response of unbelief. And that is the overwhelming reaction of the majority of people of humanity in general. That is the broad road, the broad road that leads to destruction. Most people who have lived on this earth will not be saved. An innumerable multitude will be saved and are being saved and have been saved. But the majority of people will respond but with unbelief. Thankfully, not all. There are some who respond with belief. Verses 12 and 13. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who are born not of the will of the flesh or, the, or of blood or the will of man, but are born of God. That's those who believe. So those are your two options. Having heard that God has come into the world, you can respond with belief and become a child of God, or you can respond with unbelief and remain a child of the devil. And that choice is ours to make. Most people will not believe. So we're going to cover today verses 10 and 11, and we're going to talk about this theme of unbelief. We're going to notice in human history the most tragic of tragedies, and that is that the Son of God, when He stepped into this world, was greeted with the response of unbelief. Now, before we look at verses 10 and 11, the details of the verses, I want you to notice something about the structure of the verses. Verse 10 and verse 11 say the same thing. Verse 11 basically repeats verse 10. Verse 10 states it in a general fashion pertaining to the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him. The world did not know him. That is, he came to the world. He had a claim upon the world and he was rejected by the world. Then verse 11 repeats the same thing, but in a more specific way pertaining to the nation of Israel. He came to his own. Those who were his own did not receive him. That is, he came to his own, he had a claim upon his own, and he was rejected by his own. So he came to the world, he had a claim upon the world, and he was rejected by the world. He came to his own, he had a claim upon his own, and he was rejected by his own. Those will be our six points or three points or two points, however you want to number them. I'll leave that up to you. That's why I don't hand out bulletin uh, outlines anymore. So those will be our three points or six points, however you want to factor it in. Uh, they're parallel phrases. He was in the world and he came unto his own. That's verse 10 and verse 11. The next phrases are also parallel. He made the world and those who were his own speaks of those things that he made that belonged to him. And then the last phrases of each verse are also parallel. The world did not know him and his own did not receive him. So in a very parallel fashion, he lays this out that he came to the world in his own. He had a claim upon the world in his own and he was rejected by the world in his own. So let's look, first of all, at his coming to the world. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. You'll notice the term world, cosmos, is mentioned three times in the verse. It doesn't come out this way in the English translation, but in the Greek, world stands at the beginning of each phrase. In the world he was, the world he made, the world did not receive him or know him. So it's emphasized all three times, and the emphasis is on the world. And remember, John is speaking of this coming to the world and his claim upon the world and his rejection by the world just in general terms. So he's not speaking specifically of the nation of Israel or of specific individuals, but just of the world in general. 
He came to the world. He was born here and He stepped into humanity here. The word world is used a number of different times in a number of different ways in the Bible. And it has a, a number of different meanings. And anytime you come across the word world in your Bible and you're reading through it, and John uses it a lot, you have to discern the meaning of the word by the context in which it's used. It's just like a lot of English words. We have English words that mean more than one thing. The word trunk, for instance, has a dozen different meanings. Well, you determine the meaning of the word trunk by the context in which you use the word trunk. I put the clothes in the trunk. What does that mean? Well, it could mean that you put them in a, a the trunk of your car. It could mean that you shoved your tr- uh, clothes into a, a trunk, like a, a luggage trunk type trunk. It could mean that you put your clothes in the trunk of the tree. And you look at the context and you determine what does, what does trunk mean. Same thing with the word world. It's used primarily, it has basically three different meanings. Let me give you the general meanings. The word world, cosmos, is sometimes used to speak of the physical creation, the physical world, the created universe, the orderly structure or the orderly universe in which we live. We get our word cosmos straight out of that Greek word for cosmos. It just simply refers to the the physical world in which we live. And it's used that way uh, in the Gospel of John and throughout Scripture. The word cosmos can also refer to just humanity in general, for God so loved the world. And he's not speaking of the created cosmos, the orderly universe of the planet on which we live. He's speaking of humanity in general, men and women. God so loved humanity, men and women in general. And likewise, it's also sometimes used of men who are locked in darkness to speak of sinful man. It's also used sometimes of just the general public. In John chapter 7, verse 4, Jesus' brothers challenged him, saying, No one who wants to be known openly does his deeds in secret. If you want to be known publicly, go out and show yourself to the world. And by that, they meant simply the general public. Get out in front of people, people in general, the general public, and demonstrate your works and your deeds. So sometimes cosmos can refer to the created planet, the structured universe, sometimes to humanity in general, or people specifically. And third, sometimes it's used of the world system. Love not the world or the things in the world. What does John mean by that? That you shouldn't love the universe or the planet? Or that you shouldn't love humanity or men? No, by that he's referring to the world system. The system of evil desires and lusts and energies and a way of thinking that rules God completely out. It is that worldly mindset that rules God out and operates according to the prince of the power of the air, and according to the passions of the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's the world system. Now, when John says that Jesus was in the world, what does he mean by that? It's possible that John has uh, some of all of those definitions in mind. It is true, is it not, that Jesus came into the created cosmos, into the physical world, into this planet, onto this planet? He certainly did. It's also true that He stepped into the world in the sense of becoming a man and dwelling among us who are humanity. It's also true that He came here and He lived in this world system under the prince of the power of the air in this system and in this environment in which everybody operated according to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Though Jesus was untainted and unpolluted by any of it. It's true in all of those senses. He came to this cosmos He dwelt among us in humanity and He lived here in this world under the world system while everything around Him was completely worldly. Do you realize that Jesus was in the world 
in a different sense even before he came here in the womb of Mary, miraculously? He was. J.C. Ryle, in his comments on the Gospel of John, he writes this, He was there from the beginning, ruling and ordering and governing the whole creation. By Him all things consisted. He gave to all life and breath, rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. By Him kings reigned and nations were increased or diminished. And yet men knew Him not and honored Him not. They worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. End quote. So He was here in the world in the sense that for centuries and even millennia before He ever came here physically, He was in the world ruling His creation and providing for all of His creation. As the Creator of all things, He was the ruler of all things and the sustainer of all things. And yet, did the world know Him? They worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. And they denied God to suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness so that they could have their sin and so that they could live in darkness. That was the pattern of humanity. And John says, He came into the world or He was in the world He was. This, by the way, is John's Christmas story. You realize that? Everything in the first few verses here is how John describes Christmas. You say, but this doesn't make any sense. There's no wise men or Mary and Joseph or stable or manger or star in the east or magi or anything like that. We're, we're, how does John talk about the Christmas story? Matthew and Luke give us the Christmas story from men's perspective. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus and there was a census and the wise men, the shepherds and the star and the angelic host and all of that. Everything from the human perspective. John is looking at Christmas from the eternal divine perspective. The, fle- the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And He was here. And John is concerned not so much with wise men and stables and, and shepherds and all of that, though they are significant. John is concerned about how the world received God when He stepped into the world. So He was in the world. That is, He came to the world. Second, we notice He had a claim on the world. The world was made through Him. Verse 10 says, He came into the world and the world was made through Him. Now, John already said that up in verses 3 and following, where he talked about Him being the Creator of all things. By Him, all things were created. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities, whatever it is, anything that came into being, that had a beginning, had its beginning through the Word. And the Word, who then was made flesh, was the Creator of all things. So He's already articulated for us that Jesus was the Creator of everything. The universe, the cosmos, everything that's orderly in all of creation, the stars, the moon, the sun, all of it He spoke into existence. And by virtue of that creation, He had a claim upon the world. He could step into the world and He could stand in the Temple Mount and say, look around you everybody, I created all of this. All of this I spoke into existence. By the word of my power, I spoke all of this into being and I sustain it even now. He could have said that. It was all His. The whole world was His by virtue of the fact that He was the Creator of it. Only a fool would deny that the creature owes to its Creator a debt of honor, worship, gratitude, and homage. Only a fool would deny that. Only a fool would deny that that which is created owes to its Creator all of those things. Because He not only created, but He also sustained all things and provided all things. So that rain and seasons and trees and all of the fruit and enjoyments and pleasures and all of the good things that we enjoy and that they enjoyed, all of it was due to His hand. And so He had a claim upon the whole world because He was the giver of life and the creator of it and the sustainer of it and the provider for all things. Now you would think, 
that when the creator and the provider and the sustainer of all things and the giver of life came to the ones that he had created, provided for, sustained, and given life to, that they would recognize him. Wouldn't you think that? You would expect that, would you not? Not only that, but that you would expect that when the creator and the sustainer and the provider and the giver of all life came to the ones that he had created and sustained and provided for and given life to, that they would warmly welcome him. You would think, wouldn't you? But what did they do? Look at the end of verse 10. They knew him not. They didn't know him. The word know him there doesn't simply mean that they didn't recognize him or they didn't have intellectual assent to who he was. It simply means, it means something more intimate than that. They did not receive him. They did not welcome him or give him a friendly welcome. They did not know him as a friend or stand in right relationship to him in an intimate sense. It's not just that they didn't recognize who he was. That was bad enough. But they didn't welcome him as a friend and they didn't stand in right relationship to him. They didn't know him. The world rejected him. Here's the irony of it. He came to a world that he created, walked among men that he created. He walked on land that he created, walked on water which he created. Got sunburned and suntanned by the sun that he created, sat out under the stars that he created, looked at the moon that he created, ate food that he created, rode on animals that he created, dwelt with people that he created, lived in a land that he created. All of that. And he walked past the animals and the plants and the people. They didn't recognize him. He was the creator of all of those things. And they didn't know him. They didn't give him a friendly welcome at all. He came to his own. He had a claim upon his own as the creator of, or sorry, he came to the world. He had a claim upon the world. And he was rejected by the world. That is the most tragic of tragedies. That the creator would come to his creation and not even be recognized nor be welcomed by His creation. Now, the world may at this point be able to offer an objection and to say, well, we're not the Jews. We're just the world. I mean, if we were the Jews, if we had the knowledge that the Jews had, we would have seen it coming. If He had revealed to us where He would be born and who His fathers would be and who He would be descended from and what He would do and how He would come and how He would present Himself. If He had revealed to us the world, all of those things, we would have recognized Him We would have received Him, but we didn't have any of that kind of revelation. I would answer that two ways. First, as the creation, all of the creation had a responsibility to recognize its Creator when He came, but they didn't. Second of all, how did His own receive Him? This takes us to verse 11, does it not? He came into His own, He had a claim upon His own, and His own did not receive Him either. He came into His own in the sense that He was born of a woman, He was born under the law. He was born a Jew. And He came right unto His own people. And when I say that He had a claim upon His own, in one sense, we're talking about His own people because John here has in mind not just the fact that Jesus came to the world, but that He came to His own specifically. His own people. Those who were His own. And the the Greek, literally, it's a little bit more generic than just even His own people. It's idios in the Greek. and And it means His own things. He came into His own things. Let me give you an example. When I leave here this morning, I am going to my own. And by that I mean I'm going to my own home, and I'm going to where my own family is going to be, and I'm going to step into my own house, surrounded by my own things, which I own in a unique and distinct sense. And when I step into my own and I come into my own, I'm not going to be treated like a stranger. 
I'm not going to be viewed as a stranger. I'm going to be viewed as quite at home. And I'm going to come home on my own and lay down on that which is my own and put my feet up on that which is my own and watch that which is my own. And even my own team this afternoon. I'm going to watch all of those things and I'm not going to be a stranger when I am surrounded by my own. That is the sense in which John is using it here. He came to his own things. More than one commentator has pointed out that the idea is he came home. And he was surrounded by everything that he owned. He came to his own people. He didn't go to Rome. He didn't go to China. He didn't go to Egypt. He didn't go to Assyria or Babylon. He didn't go to any other kingdom or any other country. He came to his own things. He came to his own people. They were his people by virtue of he created them just like he created everybody else. But they were his people in another sense. They were his people by election. Because God chose Abraham. And he chose Isaac. And he chose Jacob. And he chose to make a nation of those fathers. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord does not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of a mighty, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They were his people by creation. They were his people by election. And they were his people in another sense by redemption. Because God brought his people out of the house of slavery, out of Pharaoh's house, out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed them for himself. They were his people by virtue of the fact that he redeemed them from the, Isra- from the Egyptians. They were his people by creation, by election, and redemption. They were his people in every sense. But when John says that he came unto his own, to those who were his own, he doesn't just mean his own people. He also came to his own land. The nation of Israel was his. It was his. Why? Because he created it. Not only that, but he claimed it as his own. And he evicted the wicked Canaanites and settled his people there. And he made a covenant with his people. And that covenant pertained to that land. And he had designs and purposes to bring his people there and to settle his people there and to make a nation there and to protect them and to live in covenant relationship with his people there. And I believe that he still has designs and that's still his land and he still has a future for that land because it's his land. Not only that, but all of the cities were his because they were in the land. So when Jesus went from one city to another, he came to his own cities. All those cities belonged to him. And the temple was his. When the Lord came to the temple, He came to a temple that was dedicated and devoted to offering sacrifices to Him. Worshipping Him and singing His praise. And the priests were His. Their lives were to be spent in teaching His Word to the people and to represent the people to Him and to act as a mediator between the two. And the priests offered sacrifices and did feasts and performed all of the offerings to Him, the eternal Word. And that temple was dedicated to Him and to His glory and to His name and to His fame. He was the one that was worshipped in that temple. came to the temple. All of the priests were His. The Levites were His. All the tribes of Israel were His. The feasts belonged to Him. The sacrifices belonged to Him. The oracles of God that He had given to His people. The prophets belonged to Him. When He walked here, when He dwelt here, everything around Him was His by virtue of creation, by virtue of covenant, by virtue of election, by virtue of His redemption, by virtue of who He was and what He had done and given to His people. All of it was His. 
The temple, the cities, the land, the sacrifices, the scriptures, the feasts, the festivals, the offerings, the priests, the Levites, all of the tribes, everything, his. And he had a claim upon those things which were his own. And he came home, and you would expect that when the master of the house comes to the house, that he would be treated in a certain way, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you expect that when the king came home to his kingdom, that he would be given a royal welcome? And how is he welcomed? Those who were his own did not receive him. The word receive there means to take one person unto yourself in a special relationship. It's used in Matthew of Joseph taking Mary as his wife. It's used in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and I will receive you. That means to take one person to yourself in a special relationship, an intimate relationship. His people should have done that. They should have received him unto themselves, but they didn't. They should have welcomed him when he came, but they didn't. Instead, they didn't receive him. They rejected him. He who was their own, who came unto his own, was rejected by his own. And they did this not ignorantly. You're going to see as we go through the book of John, they knew. They knew. They knew who he claimed to be. They saw the signs. They knew who he was. They knew what he came to do. They knew what he, they, he was offering. And when they rejected him, it wasn't to them a mistake. They didn't say, oops, we crucified the Messiah. What a mistake that was. No, no. They did not recognize the day of their visitation. And when they rejected him, they knew exactly what they were doing. And their sin of crucifying their Messiah is not a sin of ignorance. It was a sin with knowledge and with intention and with purpose. And they did it knowingly and they did it willingly and they knew exactly what they were doing. And when the Creator came to His creation, creation didn't receive Him. And when the Creator came to His own, those who were His own people in His own land by His own temple who worshipped Him, what did they do to Him? They crucified Him. They crucified Him. Friends, this is the horror... This is the horror of unbelief. And we're talking about unbelief today. We're talking about belief next week. Lord willing, provided He spares us all. Today, unbelief. So I want to speak to those of you who are here who maybe are not believers. And you've never been born again and you've never trusted Christ and you've never repented of your sin. You've been in church for years. You understand the Gospel. You understand who the light is. I want to tell you something. The light still shines today just as bright as it ever has. But today you have more light. Because you have not only the light of creation, but you have the light of your conscience and you have the light of Christ. And you have the light of all of the New Testament revelation concerning who He is and what He offers and what He did. And you know from the light of creation that there is a Creator who created all of these things and He is big. And you know from the light of your conscience, which bears witness against you when you do wrong, that that Creator is going to have a judgment day. And your conscience testifies against you that you violated the law of God and that you've done things that are worthy of judgment. And then you have the light of Christ who stepped into the world and He said, I am the Creator, I have eternally existed, and I am here. And He has given you enough light to turn and to repent of your sins and to trust in Him for salvation. And this is the horror of unbelief. That He who came into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world, might be rejected by people who have received more than enough light to be held accountable more than enough light to turn from their sins. But as John says in John chapter 3, men love darkness rather than light. And the reason that people reject Him today and the reason that people will not believe today has nothing to do with lack of knowledge. It has everything to do with a love for sin. 
So if you've never trusted Christ, and you've never been born again, and you've never been given new affections, there's only one place you can turn, and that is to the light who is the light of men. And he who receives the light will walk in the light of life and have eternal life. That's the promise. But if you reject the light, your sin is not one of ignorance. Your sin is not just an innocent mistake. It is because you love iniquity more than you do the Savior. And it is because you love darkness rather than light. So turn to Christ and do that today. And next week we will look at the response of belief. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we thank You that You have sent Your Son into the world as the light to the world and to all men. We thank You that You have given light to us and also that You have quickened our hearts to respond to that light. We pray, O God, if there are any who are among us here this morning who have never trusted Christ and never responded to the light of life, that they would come to understand who He is and what He has done, that they would see themselves in the true light of Your Word. There are only two responses that we are confronted with, that of belief, and that of unbelief. We pray that You would loosen the chains of those who are in unbelief and set them free and bring them into the kingdom of light and of the love of Your Son. Thank You for such a light. Thank You for such a Savior. And thank You for Your grace. We commit ourselves to You this day and ask God that You would quicken our hearts and and sustain us and encourage us and strengthen us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.